everyone and welcome to another episode of Real Lit. I'm Katie. And I'm Sam. And this is Real Lit. Books, booze, and B-movies with your favorite tipsy cuties. We cover classic literature and under-discussed movies. I am your resident cinephile. You know me from all the other podcasts here on our illustrious network, Allentown Presents. I like to talk about movies. I watch so many movies. Like, if you saw how many movies I watched a week, you'd be like, whoa, how the fuck do you have time for that? We legit just talked about, like, three movies in maybe ten minutes before we even started recording (laughs) this. (laughs) Yeah, and if you're asking how I have time for that, that's a good fucking question because I don't even know how I have time for this. <laughs> you don't sleep. Oh, but you you're do. not wrong. Just at <laughs> weird times. <laughs> you're not wrong. Uh, and I am Sam. I am a English professor in community colleges in California. So I, uh, you know, I know something about English, at least. That that's, that's all I'm willing to sign my name on right now. <laughs> yes, she's good at reading and talking about go. reading. I do. I do English so good. I do English real good. Much English. Very Such good. Yeah. Such good. <laughs> Very English. Lots, lots. Mm-hmm. Yes. <laughs> all right. Today, uh, we're about to get spooky. Oh my God, I'm really excited. Me I've been too. Like, <laughs> I've been like uh, holding off on this for some reason. I don't know what it is, like delayed gratification, I guess. I guess because I was like, oh, we've already done for this coming season spooky stuff. So like I'll wait and like give us more other episodes before I come back to doing like spooky content again. And now I'm like, ah, I'm here. It's spooky time. Yeah, I'm particularly excited about this story because I have seen, I have watched like eight different versions of this story. So yeah, Uh, there are a lot of different versions of this story out there. And I think lots of people are going to be surprised at um, how similar some of the aspects of the adaptations are, as well as how very different some of the adaptations many of them are like content wise and focus wise because uh I know I was when um I was reading I was like wow there's we're 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 spending a lot of time here and I did not realize that this much time was spent here as opposed to the next part of it um we're covering Dracula today guys we're covering Bram Stoker yeah um and I didn't think this was going to be a two-parter I thought this was going to be an easy one and I was super wrong so we have a two-parter it'll just be a two-parter it won't be more than that um but yeah I was halfway through the book and my notes were already gargantuan and I was like there's no way I'm not not, I'm gonna be able to shove this into one episode it's just not possible so uh this is gonna be an episode where I do things a little differently, kind of like I do when I have episodes that span um, or when I have a focus that spans more than one episode. So I'm going to cover a little bit of like 
uh, notes about the book itself first, and and then I'm going to cover Bram Stoker, and then I'm going to get into the plot. And then next episode, we'll finish the plot, and then I'll wrap it up with some of um, with some other um, things about this story, um, potential criticisms and thoughts on it. So we are diving right in. This is Dracula, a novel by Bram Stoker. It was published in 1897. It is, of course, a gothic, um, specifically urban gothic uh, novel. And it is also an epistolary novel. So if we don't know what an epistolary novel is, um, the narrative is related through letters, diary entries, newspaper articles, things like that. Uh, it, there is no narrator, so to speak, and it's not written necessarily in first person it is written in a way of it feels like you picked up a big old uh file of documents that are related to a subject and now you're reading through all of the files that you found essentially so you've got lots of different people talking about their experiences or things that sometimes are seemingly unrelated that then you you as the reader make sense of all of that information as the events that the people are talking about in their diaries sort of start converging. So in terms of composition, Stoker researched for this novel extensively. It's uh, recorded that he had over a hundred pages just of notes for his novel. Um, we have it's dated that the writing of Dracula is between 1890 up until 1897 when it finally gets published. So he was writing it for a long time, um, nearly a decade, honestly. When it's published, Bram Stoker's mother is like convinced it's going to bring him tons of wealth. It was just so good, like all good moms. She's very supportive. And she was unfortunately and potentially surprising to some of you wrong. The novel had rave reviews. It was really um, well received, but it did not make Bram Stoker a lot of money and it did not make him a literary icon or legend until after he died. Um, the reasons for that are because Dracula is published originally in London in May, 1897. But the unusual things about this is that so contracts were usually signed at least six months ahead of publication. Dracula's was signed only six days prior to the publication. So wow. yeah, a, a really big difference. Also for the first thousand sales of the novel, Stoker earned absolutely zero royalties for it based on his contract. And That's he, bullshit. yeah. And so then in the U.S., it gets serialized. So a serialization is it, it's printed in installments, right? Like it's probably printed in some sort of journal or publication that has a bunch of little things. And then you buy the next volume and you get to read more of the story. Eventually it does get fully published as its own work in 1899 in the US. And then in the 1930s, Universal Studios purchases the rights to make a film version and in this this uh thing that happens stoker is informed because he's like wait what excuse me nobody has informed me of this well nobody had to inform him of it because he's informed that 
when he when he applied for copyright law in the U.S., when it was going to get published, he had not fully complied with U.S. copyright law. So it placed the novel and all of the characters and plot things associated with it in the public domain. Uh, so no. Universal Studios did not have to pay Bram Stoker a dime for that. That's the fucked up. Yeah. So one of the most, if not the most iconic, well-known uh, creature stories out there, much less the absolutely most well-known vampire story out there. And we know his name because of this story and it made him little money, really not anything at all. Yeah, it's an occult classic. So that is the sad story of why, even though we know Bram Stoker as a household name, or we should if we don't, um, especially if you're into spooky stuff, he uh, is only well known after his death for this, unfortunately. And um, the influences on the story itself. So pretty clearly Stoker writes in his notes um, that the name Dracula means devil. And that's why <laughs> he picked that name. Um, honestly, there it's not, it doesn't need to go any deeper than that, at least what we get from Bram Stoker's notes. However, there are some, you know, critics uh, and literary historians and researchers do feel like they have put their finger on some potential influences outside of just that. Lots of people, uh, the most popular, for instance, is probably Vlad Dracula or Vlad the Impaler. Uh, so the story behind why people think this is an influence on the character Dracula is a professor at the University of Budapest uh, may or may not have given Stoker a lot of information when he was doing his research for the novel, but other scholars are very polarized on this subject. Some think that the name and the cruelty factor of Vlad the Impaler make it really clear that this is definitely a figure that influenced the character but others think others think that um the details that Stoker included from all of his research did make their way into the narrative there's not really any definitive details that specifically link Vlad the Impaler to the things that Dracula does and in fact uh like Dracula has, and we'll, we'll talk about it a little bit when I get there in my notes, probably not this um, episode, but next episode, Dracula as a character is a fully fleshed out character. He has a backstory. He's not literally just a devil and his backstory does not fit the things that we would call Vlad the Impaler. Um, so two other kind of major influences that people suggest that I think are worth noting here is a, a lot of people say that the influence for Dracula may have been a woman, specifically Elizabeth Bathory or Bathory. If you don't know who Elizabeth Bathory is or Bathory, um, you're welcome for that rabbit hole that you're about to jump down in because she's so bad that I'm not even going to get into her. Like I'm just not because I don't have the mental energy to expend. Let's just say that there are a lot of similarities between the cruel actions and things that Dracula and vampires in general in the novel do and Elizabeth Bathory as an historical figure documented 
of the things that she was doing or capable of doing um for instance i'm gonna lightly touch on uh she was definitely in the books that stoker used for research uh so if that is where he got influences from she is a candidate there there's lots of things that she does with blood that are similar and um there's specifically like an iron maiden thing that she does that again is pretty typical um of the things that you read in the novel and that's all i'm going to touch on because this is not a um a true crime <laughs> podcast or um a, even you know a strictly spooky podcast so there are lots of wonderful spooky podcasts out there that have covered Elizabeth Bautry. If you've never listened to them, I would highly recommend you looking up their episodes on uh, her or just reading up on her in general. She's a very interesting, scary, uh, wild character. And the last influence is, of course, Carmilla. So if you've never heard of Carmilla, again, you're welcome. And this is a happier welcome because um, long story short, there is a short lesbian vampire story that precedes Dracula's publication. Um, and there are lots of similarities and echoes of the, the sort of plot points and the things that vampires do that, um, in my opinion, do clearly influence in some way the things that Dracula can do, um, particularly the woman vampires that are in his castle later, um, etc. Yeah, uh, it, it's not it's it seems obvious to me to say that uh, you know Bram Stoker was a very well-read dude and if he was writing a vampire story it stands to reasons he would read the popular vampire stories that were currently out about and about at that time and Carmilla was one of them um so yeah if you've never read Carmilla really really good story I'll probably cover that at some point in my life on this podcast when it is published it's received very well um, he's compared to great uh, authors like Wilkie Collins, Anne Radcliffe, Edgar Allan Poe, the Bronte sisters, Mary Shelley. Um, in fact, some of the criticism, the only time that like criticism gets at times a little maybe like, oh, maybe I dislike this story is because the biggest criticism that critics had was that it's almost too scary at times <laughs> that they're like, okay, I get that it's horror, but like, this is like really horrifying <laughs> in some points. And they're like, this is not for the weak stomached. Um, maybe if you don't have like a strong constitution, you shouldn't read this book. Maybe it takes away a little bit from this book being like, a literary classic which you know we could argue about that and what constitutes that till the cows come home but yeah he was too spoopy for his uh, peers apparently as far as the influence of this novel on the rest of the world on literature on art i mean it is not the first vampire literature piece out there but it is undoubtedly the most well known i don't think anyone in their right mind would argue against that uh, when you think of a vampire you think of dracula as one of if not the first depiction or characterization of what a vampire is um it's pretty likely <laughs> as sucky and annoying as it is that stoker's u.s copyright law issue contributed to its enduring status because 
for usually for a long time before people can start making adaptations they have to wait till copyright goes out and it goes into the public domain but that wasn't a problem pretty much immediately when it was published in the U.S. so people could immediately begin um, their adaptations and their derivative works and did not need to pay licensing fees to use the characters or to use the ideas from the story. So while it definitely sucks and is not cool that it happened, it probably also is a huge factor as to why it became, it exploded um, as fast as it did. The legacy that it leaves behind, as I was mentioning the adaptations, it cannot be overstated how immensely important this work is in terms of its influence and inspiration of other works that are about vampires and horror kind of in general forever after. Um, it permeates like every element of pop culture from when it comes out to now, when it comes to horror, vampires, creature tales, like even trope horrors, like being, you know, horror being adjacent to sexuality and like horror sexual themes being, um, you know, something that is explored in a variety of ways. The notable adaptations, I'm not going to cover all of them because I would be here for years, but the notable adaptations, uh, Stoker himself wrote the first theatrical adaptation. It was presented on the 18th of May in 1897. It was under the title Dracula or the Undead. And it was kind of like um, like a dual release. It was like, here's the book, bam, also here's a, a theater version of it. It was like, you know, hit them on both fronts <laughs> type of situation. The um, adaptation of Dracula by Murnau, by we call it, we known as Nosferatu. That is a very notable adaptation. That was an unauthorized adaptation. It was. They got in trouble. <laughs> they did. Yeah. So the most popular, most famous fucking version of his movie or of his story was completely fucking just stolen. Mm -hmm. Like they oh, didn't yeah. give a fuck that uh, who was it? War not Warner Brothers, but whoever universal owned the fucking copyright they didn't give a fuck mm -mm. they said they well we're making a fuck about movie. his widow we're just not gonna call it dracula but it's gonna be mm -hmm. the story of dracula his name is mm -hmm. now nosferatu like fuck it which is a term that is used in the book by the way yeah. <laughs> so it's not like they they didn't even try they don't even get the like at least you tried star they didn't yeah. even try <laughs> and nosferatu like go check out uh, the Spooky Movie Squad's covering of the movie Nosferatu, that is a fucking banger of a movie. Yeah. And it is officially 100 years old this year mm -hmm. in 2022. So it's just incredible. It's a silent yeah. film. It they is do, like, they do it really well. It's so good that technically speaking, it's it it's not supposed to be released anymore, but it was so good that people just leaked it and they just kind of gave up fighting it. They were like, yeah. well, fuck. it's on YouTube <laughs> for free. Yeah. Go yeah. watch it. It's like 80 minutes. It's a silent film, so you will have to be reading a lot, but the music by uh Hans Erdmann is fucking great. Like, go check it out. It's so good. Yeah. So that Nosferatu, amazing. Technically, it's the first full adaptation of the work and it's unauthorized, but it's not the first film to feature Count Dracula as a character. Yeah. The first one is 
uh, Dracula Halala, which is the death of Dracula. It's a Hungarian silent film released a year before Nosferatu. It's not a full adaptation, but that is the first instance in which a Count Dracula as a character is on the big screen. And then, of course, after Nosferatu, we've got the Bela Lugosi adaptation. Also fire. I mean, Bella Lugosi, come on. The uh, Universal Monsters, right in that that little pocket of time, the 1930s Universal Monsters, all of those movies, if you've never seen them, please, please, please go out and watch them. Like, so I'm talking, good. I'm talking Bella Lugosi's Franken, or Bella Lugosi's Dracula, and like fucking Frankenstein and the Invisible Man and the Mummy. Like, they are fire movies if you appreciate old hollywood like it is so it'll make a lot of sense to you when you watch it you'll be like oh that's where that idea comes from like you don't realize things that you take for granted as to what is the staple werewolf thing that werewolves do what is the staple vampire thing or what is the staple you know scary monster thing that happens all of those movies were the originators of those tropes and it makes like so much more sense when you watch them like oh, that's where my other favorite shows or movies or stories got that from. They got yeah. from this. Yeah. The Bela Lugosi adaptation is 1931. The Christopher Lee adaptation um, is, uh, the first one is 1958. And then like later on in its sequels. Of course, the the Gary Oldman's portrayal of Dracula uh, in Bram Stoker's Dracula is 1992 by uh, Coppola. We were talking about this movie before we started recording. Uh, That's the one a lot of people remember. Yeah, just why not a writer? They haven't spent the time to go see the like to watch the older ones. So mm-hmm. that's the one, like the first one that pops into a lot of people's minds because yeah. the cast was fucking packed. It was like, fire. Carrie Elwes, Winona Ryder, Keanu Reeves, of uh, fucking uh, Anthony, Anthony Hopkins. Hopkins, Gary Oldman. Like, come on. Yeah, the cast was stacked. And then uh, we've got 2009's Dracula, The Undead. It was uh, written by a great grandnephew of Bram Stoker and Ian Holt. And that is my last notable adaptation that I wanted to list there. We've got the Stoker carrying on the Dracula legacy. So I've got some notes here about Bram Stoker. They're pretty brief. uh, And then we will dive into the first half of the narrative. Bram Stoker is born Abraham Stoker on the 8th of November in 1847 in Dublin, Ireland. He's an Irishman. He is the third of seven children he actually was bedridden with an unknown illness until he started school at the age of seven. He makes a complete recovery from whatever it is, the illnesses that he has, um, which is like wonderful, but also very strange. Like what was it that he was suffering from? Because we don't know. After he recovers though, he then grows up without like any further serious illnesses, Um, He is an athlete at Trinity College in Dublin from 1864 to 1870. He graduates with a BA in 1870. He pursues his MA uh, in 1875. He's named the university athlete for Dublin University. Uh, He was the auditor of the College Historical Society and president of the University Philosophical Society. And he remains the only student in Trinity College's history to hold both positions, which is interesting. 
His early career, he does some writing mostly for theater criticism, but he also does some other shorter works, particularly in the 1870s, um, where he's making a lot of connections with important people through that, uh, and those do serve him really well. And then in 1878, he marries Florence Balcombe. Um, this was a really like well-known, beautiful, like desired woman in the area, essentially. Like some of her former suitors, for instance, one of them is Oscar Wilde. So Stoker actually knew Wilde from his student days. And after Wilde's like fall from grace, as it was, he visited him still, even after that. So there, there's a there's an argument here of we've got friends, we've got we've got a pair of friends there. The Stokers move to London where um, Brom Stoker becomes an acting manager and then a business manager of Henry Irving's Lyceum Theater in London. And he holds this post for 27 years. Uh, on New Year's Eve in 1879, he, his wife gives birth to their only child. He becomes involved um, in high society in London. So he meets people like Sir Arthur Conan Doyle, He's actually even distantly related to Sir Arthur Conan Doyle. And of course, working for Henry Irving, um, the most famous actor of his time, arguably, uh, he's managing one of the most successful theaters in London. I mean, it just makes Stoker very well-known, very busy, respectively. He's, he's got a lot of fingers and a lot of pies. With Irving, he's invited twice to the White House in the US, actually. He knew William McKinley. He knew Teddy Roosevelt. In the U.S., um, he also meets one of his literary idols in the U.S., Walt Whitman. He loved Walt Whitman, uh, was obsessed with him, and gets to meet him, and they become friends as well. In 1890, um, this is when Stoker really becomes a writer, writer. Like, my novels and stuff are really getting published, and they're, like, going at it. Um, around this time, Stoker is also the literary staff, um, a literary staff, I should say, at the Daily Telegraph in London. And he writes other fiction and other horror novels, but obviously Dracula is his like big banger that comes out in the, the 1890s. And uh, in 1912, he makes the, and this is like later on in his life, just to be clear. Um, he makes this demand suddenly that all quote, homosexual authors, unquote, in Britain should be imprisoned. So this may seem very queerphobic, understandably, because that statement is. However, many scholars believe that Stoker is likely queer himself in some way. So they believe that this might have been him um, fronting, essentially, to protect his identity um, from accusations of queerness himself um like i mentioned he's friends and he re is really ad admiring of walt whitman and henry irving and hall Payne and oscar wilde also like i mentioned like you get the idea here um these are all notable uh people very well known for having queerness in their identities if not outright very obviously implied in their identities and uh, you factor this in with the, the queer erotic nature of a lot of his novels, especially Dracula, we'll get there. And uh, yeah, we, we just have some questions about Bram Stoker. And I think those questions are valid to have. 
speaking of his like beliefs and his philosophies in general, like he was raised a Protestant in the church of Ireland. Um, and for any of us listening in the UK out there, he believed at the time that Ireland should remain in the British empire. So make of that what you will there. And Stoker really liked science and science-based medicine, which is, which does make him stand out a little bit here. Some of his novels are discussed as early representations and examples of science fiction, like um, in the same way Mary Shelley is the founder of science fiction with Frankenstein and things like that. He counts among his friends um, people like J.W. Brody Innes, who is a member of the Hermetic Order of the Golden Dawn. If you don't know what that society is uh you are welcome once again for that rabbit hole but it is this is a pretty huge thing like um it's one of the biggest influences on western occultism like uh, just bar none any sort of like western occultist uh society or things or belief systems that you think of the hermetic order of the golden dawn um is probably at some point in the origin stories of that um and it's very freemason like but with occult shit attached, right? Hermetics um, are alchemic things. And uh, speaking of that, although Henry Irving was an active Freemason, there is no evidence that we have found of Bram Stoker either being a Freemason or of him being himself a member of the Hermetic Order of the Golden Dawn. It's just known that he has close ties and friendships with people who are definitely noted as members of those orders. And finally, after he suffers, um, unfortunately, a number of strokes, Stoker does die in April of 1912. His death certificate names his cause of death as locomotor ataxia six months. We believe and presume this to be referencing syphilis, something to do with syphilis. So this is another um, potential indicator of his maybe more queer nature, unfortunately. Those are my stories. I say unfortunately, not it's, it's not unfortunate that he's queer. It's unfortunate that he died of an illness potentially that could have been treated if people weren't being assholes about being queer. Um, anyway, those are my notes that I uh, want to share before we jump into the plot and then uh, I will have just a little bit more to say after we finish the plot next episode but um, without further ado we're gonna jump into Bram Stoker's Dracula. <laughs> the smile Katie just gave me she's so excited. So we start with Jonathan Harker's journal entries. Jonathan Harker is a solicitor like a law dude essentially and he's going to Transylvania in Eastern Europe. He's going to meet with a client of his boss. This client's name is Count Dracula. He is going to help Dracula with the paperwork, essentially, of a new piece of property that the Count is purchasing in London. So the Count is moving, and he needs Jonathan Harker's help to, like, take care of the paperwork, essentially, right? Like, cool, cool. On Jonathan's way there, all the common people are very terrified when learning about where he's going. It is very 
clearly Bram Stoker building up foreboding um, situations there, you know, crossing themselves and giving him crucifixes and, you know, trying to ward him off of the evil eye, et cetera, et cetera. Eventually the night comes where he is making his like last leg of the journey because it takes a while for him to get there. Um, the coach ride up the mountain is creepy as fuck. <laughs> like the personal coachman of the count, the count is not in the coach with them, but this is the guy that's picked Jonathan up from essentially like the public coach, like the taxi <laughs> essentially that he had taken up the mountain. And they were like, well, this is as far as we go. And then the rest of the way, the Count's dude takes you. So the Count's dude is taking him um, and he's creepy AF. Um, they have a really scary ride up the mountain to Dracula's castle. It includes things like floating blue flames and like time skipping um, and uh, wolves nearly attacking them all. <laughs> uh, so this scene is really fucking cool in Nosferatu. Yeah. Like, like the way that they are able to do this scene in black and white and still make it like freaky the fuck out is yeah. incredible. I mean, it's so wild when you watch some of those older movies, just how much they were able to do with their limited technology. Nosferatu, I also always think of um, the cabinet of Dr. Dr. Caligari. Yeah. Yeah. And incredible like the incredible film. How old that film is, how early the technology and it still bangs so hard absolutely the the cabinet of dr caligari is probably my favorite old movie yeah. like it one of my favorite movies in existence the fucking things that they were able to create with the limited resources that they had and the limited technology that they had is just fucking mind-blowing if you have never yeah. seen this go back listen to the spooky movie squads episode on the the cabinet of dr caligari but also just go fucking find a copy of it somewhere on the internet and watch it it is the very first horror movie that has ever existed it is it yeah. is number one the very first that we horror. at least have still somewhere yeah yeah and it is just the fucking cinematography is like off the charts for this film that is over a hundred years old at this point like it'll blow your goddamn mind yeah and that sort of mood is very clearly at play here um it takes them a long time but finally uh we show up at the castle the castle of count dracula and when the count comes out uh and helps jonathan harker he's actually very hospitable he shows jonathan to his room he takes care of his food needs um, Jonathan finds him very amiable at first. He enjoys talking to him the first few days. Uh, however, he very quickly starts noticing some strange things that just keep going downhill <laughs> the longer time goes on. So for instance, the Count is often not around in the day. Sometimes he is, but not often. However, at night, he then keeps Harker up um, pretty much all night with his talking. And there are a lot of locked doors in the castle that Harker is not allowed to go into. Jonathan cannot open. The Count doesn't have a reflection in mirrors. Uh, Jonathan can no longer find the way out to like the outside world from the castle. The doors that might lead there are all locked. 
So he slowly starts realizing, oh, I'm a prisoner. Like I didn't, I was taken in here very, you know, I was trapped like a fly with honey essentially. And now I am trapped. Um, And I, it's taken me too long to realize this. The rosary that like a poor um, common lady gave him on his way up there, he keeps it now around his neck. And uh, it's the only thing that keeps the count sometimes from touching him. He sees the count several times crawl out of a window and down the side of the castle headfirst like a lizard. So, you know, just like casual things <laughs> that Jonathan Harker is noticing. That is, may- Jonathan Harker has some concerns is maybe the title of the first part of this story. Um, and one night slash day, maybe, um, time starts getting really weird for Har- for Jonathan, um, really bad so he's out in like a different spot in the castle and he gets very tired so he lays down for a nap um which is a bad idea the count has already warned him that he should only ever sleep in his own chambers if he does not sleep there and sleep somewhere else in the castle there are undetailed dangers that await him essentially so Jonathan falls asleep in this area of the castle that is not his chambers. And he is nearly bitten on the neck. Um, And it's a really sexually charged scene um, by three beautiful women that come and approach him. And he's almost in like a dream state where he doesn't feel like anything is real. and he feels like there's a part of him that is afraid that this is real and wants to run away, but cannot. But before he is bitten on the neck, Dracula saves Jonathan, insisting that Jonathan is, quote, his, and that the women cannot, quote, have a kiss, unquote, until Dracula is done with him. Um, so you know what? I'm, I'm just going to I'm just going to read this. <laughs> How dare you touch him, any of you? How dare you cast eyes on him when I had forbidden it? Back, I tell you all. This man belongs to me. Beware how you meddle with him or you'll have to deal with me. The fair girl, with a laugh of ribald coquetry, turned to answer him. You yourself never loved. You never love. On this, the other women joined, and such a mirthless, hard, soulless laughter rang through the room that it almost made me faint to hear. It seemed like the pleasure of fiends. Then the Count turned, after looking at my face attentively, and said in a soft whisper, Yes, I too can love. You yourselves can tell it from the past, is it not so? Well, now I can promise you that when I am done with him, you shall kiss him at your will. Now go, go, I must awaken him, for there is work to be done. So I'm going to let that passage sit (laughs) and percolate, because there's a lot to consider in what I just read. Dracula's in love with Jonathan. (laughs) Um, Yeah, that, that. I mean, there's not a lot of room to like argue some sort of different interpretation of what just happened here. Um, Very interesting. 
And right off the bat, like we are not even a hundred pages into the story. We're not even, I don't know, 60 pages into the story at this point. Uh, so right off the bat, we're queer y'all. We're here and we're queer. So instead of uh, getting bit by these women, um, Dracula saves Jonathan and beats them away and instead gives the three women a baby and they take the baby away yikes yep um and things get weirder now and I know that that it feels like we've already hit weird and I'm telling you things get weirder (laughs) um so the count makes him write three letters postmarked in the future saying he's leaving and now he's out and is in the city and almost home etc etc um even though he's clearly not and he's not going to be doing that and both jonathan and the count know it right so where before jonathan was writing like multiple times a day he suddenly jumps several days sometimes and sometimes a week or more between his like writing entries and then when he writes again he doesn't like update on everything that's been happening if he does anything at all there but here's the most important stuff okay and all this kind of confusion eventually jonathan crawls out his own window and and crawls along the side of the castle to the count's window where he always sees the count crawling out does he crawl like a lizard face down no he he does it right ways up i'm like Um, there's some weird (laughs) shit happening at this castle (laughs) yeah uh one of those like mystery spots right um so he crawls along the side of the castle to the count's window and he goes in and he explores the count's room is real dusty in there and he finds a door in that room that leads down a windy staircase and through a long underground tunnel and then when it comes back up it comes up into an old creepy abandoned chapel that has a bunch of essentially coffins in it and the count is in there in one of the coffins and he's not sleeping necessarily but he's also not awake per se so jonathan has found the count and he's trying to find like a key on the count um maybe like for the front door or something right but he can't find anything on the count at all and the count doesn't stir so he just comes back and and goes back um into the count's room and then crawls again and goes back into his own room at one point in time he nearly gets attacked at the wrong moment in the castle again the three women suddenly come upon him after floating into the room as like like misty things on moonbeams and finally the night before his day that he's going to quote unquote leave comes jonathan is like okay cool i guess what this is meaning is this is obviously a euphemism what what is happening is i'm apparently dying tomorrow right so then he like goes to sleep well before he goes to sleep he's like okay well i'm dying tomorrow and he hears the count outside of his door keeping the women away from his room saying that tomorrow is theirs but tonight is mine and then jonathan just goes to sleep during the night and then he wakes up in the next morning and his butt hurt (laughs) i mean i have questions and so jonathan 
has now passed the night that was Dracula's, that Dracula called mine. And he crawls out of his room again and crawls into the counter room again. And he finds him in the same spot in that old chapel, except now the count is engorged with blood and younger looking. So what's clearly happened is he got fed on last night, but we are not talked about that in terms of like physical um, implications or symptoms on Jonathan at all. So Jonathan tries to murder the count by decapitating him with a shovel in the coffin, but he can't. The count suddenly looks at him and Jonathan at the last minute just misses, like gives like a glancing blow off of his forehead that does like nothing to him and misses. And then he just crawls away again. He crawls back to his room and he's now like, okay, well, you know what? Uh, if I'm going to die, then I might as well die because I was trying to escape. So he steals a bunch of gold from the count's room and he tries and escape. He crawls out of the window again. And I guess now he's just going to escape on foot, even though that makes no sense because it was a harrowing carriage journey to get here to the top of this mountain. And there's like wolves all around in the surrounding forest. Yeah. And he's just like, okay, bye. I'm, I'm getting out of here. And that's the end of his diary entries. So after this section, we now are getting correspondences and diary entries and newspaper clippings and things like that from a series of other characters and events. And these go backward in time. They start dating back when Jonathan first began his captivity with the Count, just to be clear. And they're in London now. We are no longer in Eastern Europe. So the people that we are suddenly throwing into the mix here are Mina Murray. Mina Murray is engaged to Jonathan Harker. She is a teacher. Her friend, Lucy Westenra, this is her childhood friend, Dr. John, or what who they what they really call him, Jack Seward. Seward. I think it's Seward. Seward. Now that I'm trying to say this out loud, I've realized I haven't actually like thought about how it's pronounced. I guess I've always been saying Seward. S-E-W-A-R-D. I think in the 1992 one, I think they say uh like Seward. Seward. Or okay. S- or Seward, Seward, it's something like that, like sewer. Yeah. Okay. Jack Seward. I just, I guess, I never, I never said it out loud until this moment, and I realized that it sounded weird. I was like, okay. <laughs> anyway, Jack Seward, Seward. Um, he's a psychiatrist essentially. He runs a, a really problematic word asylum. He runs an asylum. Okay. Quincy Morris, who is a Texan. And, um, like, that's really all we know about him. Like, I don't know, he's rich, I guess, or whatever, is the only other stuff that we learn about him. And a man named Arthur Holmwood. He is the only heir to a lordship, essentially. So Lucy is proposed to by three guys all in one day. And those guys are, you guessed it, Seward, Morris, and Arthur Holmwood. (laughs) Um, Arthur is the one that she accepts as she like lo- like loves Arthur. She's just head over heels for him. So Homewood, Arthur is friends with um, Quincy Morris and Jack Seward. 
And Seward is dealing with a current patient who is giving him a little trouble. This patient's last name is Renfield. This man is a quote, problematic, I'm sorry, potentially triggering for people, pre-homicidal maniac, unquote. And uh, he is obsessed with consuming lives to sustain his. So by this, I mean, they say this word and call him this zoophagus, zoophagus. So he eats things raw. Gross. He eats flies and spiders and birds, and he wants to have a cat. And one can only guess why that is. Um, you get the idea. So that's Renfield. Mina is starting to worry about Jonathan, her fiance, after a month goes by from his last post-dated letter. And she's hearing nothing. So she and Lucy are on like holiday at the moment. I guess they're like going and visiting her mother in like a, like a holiday area next to the sea or something. And Lucy begins sleepwalking again. She hasn't sleptwalked since she was a child. The more time goes by, the more worried Mina becomes for Jonathan, of course. And where they're staying, a Russian ship called the Demeter comes into the harbor despite a huge wild bad storm that happens very suddenly and it passes as soon as the Demeter is docked it's manned by a corpse no one else is on board this ship except the course tied to the helm and there's a huge dog that immediately jumps away and disappears into the forest the corpse is tied to the wheel with crucifixes in its hands and there is a message in a bottle tied to its waist. It turns out that this is the captain of the Demeter. And the story that he's put in his bottles tells how the crew, after taking off, is picked off one by one by an it on board. Um, it's a very terrifying, harrowing recounting of this story. The captain put this story in this bottle, of course, after tying himself to the wheel to essentially thwart it. Lucy sleepwalks continually and one night she sleepwalks out of the house to an old abandoned like church graveyard. When Mina finds her outside, there's this black figure bent over her with red eyes. It immediately runs off. Mina is like, ah, oh, fuck, that was weird. And she just gets Lucy and they go home. And she promises Lucy to never tell anyone about it, um, which is an understandable thing here. The, you have to think about the reputation of women at this point in time, um, having her wandering around in the middle of the night is not great, uh, especially if she's seen with some sort of figure that we can't identify. So Mina is worried in the morning because during the night when she found Lucy, like she took her cloak off to like keep Lucy warm and she put the heavy cloak on and, and used a cloak pin to keep the cloak around Lucy as they came home. And now Lucy has two little pin pricks on her neck. So Mina assumes just naturally, oh, I must have accidentally hurt her last night when I pinned the cloak on. And Lucy's like, oh, it's fine. I don't even feel it. It's not a big deal. So Lucy for a time is looking and feeling better than she has for a while because Mina is sleeping with the key to their room around her wrist now. So Lucy can't get out. And one night 
Mina wakes up and she's standing and pointing out the window in her sleep. And um, now she's getting weaker and paler again and she's sleeping more um, because another night there's a huge bird that's out the window and Lucy's leaning out of the window next to the huge bird. So things start getting worse again and the wounds on her neck have not healed. They've somehow gotten bigger, of course, and worse. Back at the, um, we're going to say, place for the mentally ill people, Seward's patient Renfield has suddenly given up his desire for his quote-unquote pets. He is now fixated on a master that is now apparently quote-unquote here. One night he breaks out of the asylum and he like runs off into the woods um, finally to like this seemingly old abandoned um property and he's like start talking about oh i've been faithful to you um i should be rewarded etc they catch him they take him back to the place they put him in a straight jacket they chain him up essentially in his padded cell <sighs> mina finally hears from jonathan again she hears by proxy so what happens is a nun sends her a letter saying that we have your fiance he is here at a hospital in budapest with a quote brain fever unquote uh they would have written sooner but when he arrived he had no identifying information on him whatsoever and he was not in the right state of mind to be able to tell them anything about himself like um he's just rambling on about things you know typical casual things blood and demons and horror <laughs> it's essentially so the nun is sending for mina saying hey you should come attend your fiance but that he is doing much better now. Um, he should be as good as new in no time. Um, so Mina is very happy to hear this and heads out immediately. Yes. So casual. Such casual. Very casual. Like, oh, great. <laughs> what am I going to find here? So Mina goes to Budapest. Mina is attending to Jonathan in Budapest. He is still very clearly traumatized as fuck. But he says that he, oh, he has no memory really of what happened to him before his quote unquote brain fever. He asks for his journal. So he kept his journal on him like at all times. He finds it for him among his belongings. And he says that this holds the secret to what he went through, but that he does not want to know about it. So he entrusts Mina with it to keep it and basically says okay you can read it if you want but i just don't want to know anything about it unless it's absolutely necessary for me to know so they're married later that day and as a wedding gift she wraps up the journal and states that um this is a gift of trust between them that she will not break it open either unless it is absolutely necessary for her to do so for him right it's fucking wild that there was like oh yeah i returned and i just got out of the hospital you know what we need to do get married right away right now that's this is the fucking time they do it in he's in his hospital bed <laughs> like when absurd it it's wild so back in london renfield is getting worse he's violent all the time except at nights where he is calm they essentially set a trap for him. They like allow him to escape again so that they can follow him and see what happens. And he goes back to that old, old seemingly abandoned place. 
he's talking seemingly to himself the same kind of stuff but there's a big bat there um and that big bat calms him down um because when he's caught of course he like tries to kill seward and like everyone trying to catch him but then he just calms down because he sees the bat so they capture him again and they bring him back and he has some ups and downs after this like back and forth between fits in the day and calms at night and fits and calm and etc lucy is uh she'll tell you how she's doing not well bitch is how lucy is doing she is back home again no longer at the like vacation home that they were at she's seeing arthur again now of course um because when she was out um when they were on vacation, Arthur was going to come and visit them while they were there, but he ended up not being able to. His father is very unwell. So every once in a while, his father gets ill and he has to stay with his dad and etc. So now she's back at her regular residence in London. Arthur is able to come and hang out with her, but now she's really struggling seemingly with an illness. They don't know what's wrong with her because she's very exhausted. She's having nightmares. She's having breathing problems. She can't remember her nightmares either which is another issue that they would have normally used to help diagnose the problem and arthur is so upset about it that he asks jack seward so jack comes to look at lucy who uh because he's you know in love with her remember he is one of the three dudes that proposed to her on the same day jack seward quincy morris and arthur so jack comes to look at lucy um um, immediately upon getting you know word from arthur and uh he agrees that this does not look good but that there doesn't seem to be any physical cause to her illness uh, his opinion as a doctor uh and so she's acting as if she is suffering in his opinion from some sort of bad blood loss like you know she has lost a lot of blood and but he cannot see any outward signs of anemia or anything that would have caused that like no major gaping wounds or whatever right no evidence of blood on the floors or anywhere where she would have like hurt herself so he has an idea he knows an old professor of his named abraham van helsing van helsing is a specialist in um brain things for all intents and purposes um in the 1800s whatever that would have entailed in the 1800s he is a specialist in it so jack calls van helsing van helsing comes to jack because jack was one of his favorite students and he comes to meet lucy and he tells jack okay i'm having the same thoughts as as you are i want to continue examining her but i can't for a few days i have to go back to amsterdam because um van helsing is dutch just to be clear so he's like, I have to go back to Amsterdam for a few days, but I will come back. Um, let me know if she suddenly gets better or suddenly gets very worse and I will immediately come back. So she's better for a few days, but then she rapidly gets worse. So Jack and Van Helsing go back to see her and she is looking bleak. Van Helsing is like, okay, we got to do... <laughs> This is, for modern audiences, one of the most unbelievable parts of this story. We've hit one of them, okay? It's going to be hard for you guys to read this and suspend your disbelief. Van Helsing is like, all right, she doesn't have enough blood. It's obvious that she's suffering from blood loss. Well, what she needs is a blood transfusion. So Arthur shows up very worried sick, and they're like, perfect, you can do it. <laughs> 
we're just gonna transfuse arthur's blood into hers Mm -hmm. and it'll be fine everything will be fine which is super not how blood works please don't ever try this at home um you will probably kill the person because you can't just transfuse any random person's blood and into any other random person's body that's not how blood works well true but in the in the 1800s they didn't know any better so oh no they didn't know it's very believable that they would have done this it's just not believable that this isn't then the immediate reason why she dies (laughs) like yeah she should it should be very bad very quickly because she should like go septic and die yeah in the movie the in the 1992 movie at this point uh all three dudes i think that wanted to marry lucy are there and oh, they, we're, oh we'll get there bitch we'll get there <laughs> and well this specific like blood part they uh van helsing does like a little test he like takes a little tiny syringe of each of their bloods to like compare it to lucy's to see which one would work they like throw it in they're just like oh yeah it wasn't just like bullshit <laughs> yeah it wasn't yeah, they're just trying whoever. very hard yeah right yeah which is very admirable of them because the book does not do that. Van Helsing is just like, she needs a strong man's blood. Let's find a strong man. It's going to be Jack before Arthur shows up. And he's like, never mind, it can be Arthur. So they transfuse a bunch of Arthur's blood into Lucy. It does her very good, <laughs> unbelievably. They send Arthur home to recover. And uh, they then see the two wounds on her neck. They had not seen them up until now because Lucy's wearing, you know, women back in this day were covered a lot. So she's still fucking outrageous. Like you're a doctor and she's lost blood. Why would you not strip her naked? Examine her for a wound. Why would you not examine her? Exactly. Great question. I have no answer for it. But they finally, like, she's like, they're laying her down or whatever. And like her handkerchief slips just a fraction. And they're like, what are those? And they see the little wounds on her neck. So Jack sits up with Lucy all night on Van Helsing's order after he sees those marks. Van Helsing is like, you need to sit up with her. You, and I mean, sit up with her. You cannot sleep, sir. You need to be awake and watching her at all times. You can sleep when she's during the day. It'll be fine. So Jack does that and she does fine during the night. Van Helsing has to leave now suddenly, but he will be back ASAP. So when Van Helsing is gone, Jack doesn't stay up with her the next night. Uh, And then they both find her in the morning, nearly drained to death oops so now jack because arthur is home recovering now it has to be jack that transfuses some blood into her to save her so now we've mixed two different bloods into this girl's body she should be dead does she it works again though she's fine now again and van helsing is like okay no more nights alone uh until something i ordered for us comes here to the house like he's like put like an amazon order on or something and like is waiting for his fucking shipment so they take shifts and and, like keeping an eye on her in the middle of the night until what he ordered comes guess what he's ordered garlic yeah i was gonna say it's garlic a lot of garlic (laughs) van helsing makes lucy wear a big huge necklace of garlic 
He puts it all over her room and on the doors and the windows. And now he's like, okay, this will be fine. Now we can leave her alone. We don't have to sit up with her every waking moment. As long as you lo- fucking chain all the doors because this bitch just be sleepwalking. Well, presumably she won't be sleepwalking if she's having a peaceful night and she should be having a peaceful night if no weird things are disturbing her slumber, right? So, sure. Right. So they're like, okay, this will be fine. They go off and then in the morning they come back and her mom is like, oh, she's doing great. And they're like, oh, wonderful. And she's like, yeah, she's still sleeping. And they're like, oh, interesting. She must've been really tired. And she was like, yeah, I feel really proud of myself. She's sleeping so soundly now because in the middle of the night, like I went in to check on her and it was really stuffy in there. And like, there was all this like garlic. And so like, I just opened the windows a little bit and I like took all the garlic out because it was so stuffy. Um, And yeah, now she's sleeping soundly. She's still, she's still sleeping right now. And Van Helsing and Jack are like, great. Um, let's go check on her right now yeah (laughs) lucy's dead because you are a dumb bitch (laughs) so they go in and lucy has is almost dead again van helsing himself this time now gives his own blood to transfuse so this is person number three yeah after this time they tell mom hey um don't fucking remove stuff from the room unless if the doctor has like put it there just like please don't do that okay thanks (laughs) so lucy does really good for several days and she's getting better she's like legitimately getting better then one night a wolf escapes from the local zoo (laughs) and renfield somehow breaks out of his cell he finds jack's office and stabs Jack in the wrist and then like begins licking the blood off of the floor before he gets caught again. Um, and Van Helsing has to leave that night. He telegraphs Jack about it so that he can go and keep watch over Lucy, but the telegraph is delayed. So nobody is there for her that night. So her mom sleeps with her. And in the middle of the night, a huge bat show up shows up at her window. And then the escaped wolf from the zoo busts through her window, like just busts it open with its face. So her mom dies because her mom has a heart condition, just FYI. So her mom like freaks out and has a heart attack and dies. And Lucy is struck on the head by her mom's like corpse essentially and passes out for a while because she for sure got a concussion from that. Um, Her mom like essentially headbutted her. And when she comes to, the maids have found her and her mom's body and they're screaming. So they start cleaning things up, but they eventually don't come back because Lucy is like, okay, this has been a shock. You guys need to go and take a glass of wine before you keep going. And so they're like, yes, ma'am. Yes, ma'am. And they go, but then they don't come back. So Lucy goes to the dining room and she finds that somebody has drugged the wine. So all the maids are on the floor. Cool. 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 So she writes all of this down and is like, I don't know what's happening, but it feels like I'm going to die. So I'm going to shove this. I'm going to, I wrote it all down. I'm going to shove this paper in my tits and I'm just going to hope someone finds it. That's honestly the, the gist of what she writes to send it off. And the morning comes 
the telegraph gets to jack so he immediately rushes over because he's like oh fuck i was supposed to be nobody's been with her all night so van helsing gets there at the same time so no one comes to the door they have to break into the house they break into the house they find the maids still passed out on the ground but they are thankfully coming around they find lucy and her mom in the bedroom lucy is very close to death but again still somehow alive um and when they are regrouping in one of the other rooms quincy morris arrives the texan the rich texan because arthur sent quincy for him because arthur can't come yet um his father is dying essentially at this point in the narrative so they're like perfect because she needs another transfusion and we we've all we've done it all already (laughs) all of us have done it so quincy does it so now we're at four dudes with their blood in this poor girl's body um and this time it doesn't seem to make the same improvement that the other times did unfortunately Um, She does gain some strength and consciousness back, but not her color, not um, really her constitution. Her teeth are longer and sharper. When she sleeps, she wants to shove the garlic away from her body. Yeah. Arthur eventually arrives. They settle in um, to watch her die, essentially. Meanwhile, we we get a meanwhile in um, the documents here we suddenly shift to reading mina and jonathan's diaries mina and jonathan are back in london finally jonathan is doing very well his boss who was like a pseudo father figure to both he and mina his boss has made jonathan partner essentially in their law firm and then informs jonathan that he has left them everything in his will because he's real old um i guess so he's like when i die you guys get everything and that's great um mina has of course heard nothing about what, what's happening with lucy so then the boss dies very suddenly the funeral um is gonna be directly around where lucy is so mina is like hey maybe i can pop in and visit you or something renfield at the hospital has also broken out at one point and he's like attacked people that were delivering things to the abandoned property in the back the same one that he like keeps running back to over and over again um before he is caught and brought back lucy's neck marks heal and van helsing says that okay she's dying very soon now it's very soon So he brings Arthur in to tell her goodbye, and then she stops breathing. But Van Helsing says, this is only the beginning. (laughs) Fun. So they prepare for the funeral. Um, And by the way, Arthur's dad also dies here. Um, And now he gets everything, right? He gets both the lordship and he gets Lucy's and her mom's stuff, too. So it's really sad as fuck. Van Helsing is like, hey, Arthur, um, can I take all of Lucy's writings and stuff and keep them? And I'll just keep them safe and I'll give them back to you eventually, I promise. And Arthur is like, yeah, whatever, I'm sure, I'm sure. Let me say real quick, um, since we're about to move on from Lucy's life, there is a moment in the movie, the in the 1992 one with Keanu Reeves, that is the most awkward fucking scene that's ever been put in a movie ever um and that would be what the last night before the texan arrives when she's alone 
uh, and her mom is in the room. The wolf arrives. What happens in the movie is rather than her being in the room all by herself and the wolf coming in and breaking the door, um, Lucy sleepwalks out into like the garden area and then the wolf comes and there's like this weird like hypnotic look like Lucy opens her eyes and then there's this weird like hypnotic look on her face. And then the wolf fucks her. Oh. Oh, no. Oh, no. Okay, sure. Yeah, so in the movie, there's not bats. Like, they avoided the bats. And we're meant to believe that Dracula... Like, Dracula is a werewolf? um, He can transform into anything. Yes. So the lore of vampires has changed immensely in the time since this book came out. Um, and we've all pretty much just gotten rid of it can transform into anything to it's yeah. becoming it only transforms into bats. Yeah, it's because of the vampire bats. They they essentially just kind of merged. And the fact that bats were a thing in the book itself, it yeah. just kind of like they they threw all the other things by the wayside. But when I watched this movie the 92 version i had no idea that vampires were associated with any other animals besides bats um so the idea (laughs) that uh dracula just like morphed into a wolf and then like hopped off that boat that we talked about earlier and ran away and then like popped up here to seduce her and use her and question mark impregnate her like who the fuck knows what was going on there yeah like it was wild as hell but also like why would you put that in this movie if it wasn't in the book why would you add that we did not need bestiality in this movie um (laughs) and it is just like it is weird it is like i mean it's not they don't go super graphic into it but it's like it's clear that that's what's happening yeah so she's like laid down on a bench in the garden oh god um and the wolf is like hovering over her over her like in a not in a i'm gonna eat you kind of way yeah uh in a simba nala giving simba the eyes kind of way and it is weird. <laughs> oh god <laughs> it is fucking weird so just a heads up if you're planning on watching the 1992 version of this movie there's a weird yeah weird bestiality kind of moment in the middle there so it gets weird <laughs> oh i shouldn't be surprised that shouldn't surprise me <laughs> oh. yeah it's weird cringy so um yeah that happens apparently at, at least in the movie um van helsing asks arthur if he can have all of Lucy's writings and stuff and keep them and keep them safe, essentially, like, I'll give them back to you. Um, and Arthur's like, sure. So Mina and Jonathan go to the funeral of his boss, their kind of pseudo father figure. And they're told via telegraph that same day of Lucy and her mother's death and the funeral that happened simultaneously, essentially. So they didn't even get to go to Lucy's funeral. So they're walking around town and jonathan sees someone 
and immediately freaks out essentially and calls this person the count um who doesn't see him by the way the dude is fixated on a woman and is like following her like a creepy stalker of course so mina takes him away and like lets him rest for a bit and when he wakes up he's fine again seemingly and doesn't remember what happened really so mina is now like "Uh uh-oh like i'm gonna have to read that fucking journal aren't i (laughs) well fuck so lucy's funeral is very sad everyone is exhausted um for a lot of reasons and after several days newspaper articles start coming out of kids now going missing and being found with holes in their necks saying that they were led away by a quote blue fur lady unquote don't at me i have no idea what this is supposed to be referring to i've tried to look it up what it's talking about i super don't know what blue fur lady means <laughs> but that's what they're referring to her as the, the blue fur lady i i wish i could tell you maybe somebody who lives in the uk can tell us right in leave a comment i don't know um the blue fur lady mina reads jonathan's journal she is shook tm uh and does not know whether to believe it or not believe it like maybe this was part of his hallucinations he brought on by some sort of brain fever that he was you know suffering from van helsing contacts her van helsing wants to meet her he um has read lucy's papers um and he has some things that he wants to talk to mina parker about so they meet mina has transcribed her old journals detailing all of the sleepwalking things from Lucy, et cetera, et cetera. Um, and he reads them and he is like, I see, I see. I am uh, in your debt forever, lady. This is some great shit. Thank you. Thank you. So Mina is like, okay, well, if you're in my debt, uh, would you look into my husband and heal him? And he is like, Uh, I mean, yeah, whatever I can do for you, please. Yeah, absolutely. What's wrong with your husband? So she gives him Jonathan's journal and tells him that he saw this supposed count in London, which, and it gave him a shock. So Van Helsing reads it and is like, okay, um, okay, listen. So like, you can believe your husband, first of all, that's the first thing. Uh, Everything he wrote is true, all of it. And also, I, like, need to meet him right now. I need to meet him, like, yesterday. So let's set up a meeting. And so he comes to breakfast, like, the next day or something, to meet with Jonathan, who has since talked to Mina about this, all of this, and he is now doing better for that. He essentially writes that he's he's reconciled that a big part of his issue before was the doubt that what he had experienced was even real or not, essentially. And now he's much more assured, and he's focused on facing this issue if the count is indeed here now in London so he and Van Helsing talk and Van Helsing is like okay if I send for you both like I may need help with something um okay well uh maybe I'm not gonna mince words here maybe if I need help 
dealing with this dude being here um are you guys gonna come and they're like yeah duh yeah duh uh so jack seward meanwhile has been depressed dealing with the fact that the person that he loves is now dead um but you know he's doing life etc and van helsing comes into his office suddenly and slaps down a newspaper about the blue for lady hurting the kids and jack's like uh oh the bites that are on these kids necks they're like lucy's bites the same thing that killed lucy must be killing these kids and van helsing is like i mean yeah and also no and jack is like what do you mean sir and van helsing is like okay listen i need you to like um have an open mind okay and jack is like sure 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 whatever and then Helsing is like, but I'm serious. And Jack is like, yeah, what? And he's like, okay, so the same thing that happened to these kids isn't the same thing. And Jack is like, I need you to spit it out. And Ben Helsing is like, it's Lucy. Lucy is doing it. Lucy's hurting these kids. And that's where I'm going to break for next week. So I found um, a a post basically of a woman who had researched the blue for lady trying to figure out what the fuck it meant and essentially she found that it just means beautiful lady and blue for is like the way that it sounds in the cockney accent apparently it's like the kids really bad like like add like speak add little kid speak on top of like a cockney accent and then people who yeah. don't who aren't from there trying to understand what these little kids are saying yeah apparently it just is beautiful lady i should have known for a variety of reasons that we'll talk about <laughs> next episode <laughs> yeah. yeah anyway that's where we're gonna end we'll start back up next week yeah that is I love this story, but it is wild. <laughs> Very wild. The fact also, that... No, keep going. It's also interesting that Jonathan is like a lawyer? Yeah. Person? Because in... I can't remember if it is in the 1992 version, because it's been like a year since we watched it. But in Nosferatu, he's not really a lawyer he's he's like a real estate agent um yeah so um i mean there's lots of different types of law he's yeah solicitor in the sense that lawyers one of the biggest things that lawyers would have been a thing for would have been real estate would have been land ownership. okay that makes sense yeah because the the land in nosferatu they actually make they do a lot of backstory on dracula purchasing land like that's the whole reason jonathan was there like this one they they mention it kind of like dracula go or jonathan goes to see dracula at his manor and they talk but like it's not a super huge involved thing it's also not very um it's also not very clear until like several several entries in on harker's journal what is actually happening because of the nature of the fact that it's an epistolary novel so jonathan harker is not 
writing his diary thinking that he has to explain everything for a narrative purpose fair so he doesn't like you don't even really kind of understand why he's going there for a while until it kind of comes about when he's like sitting and talking with the count oh your boss is a solid okay so you're you're helping this dude purchase this piece of okay yeah it 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 makes sense later on but for a while you're you like have no clue even really what he's doing and why he's going there they do they do a really good job at the very beginning of nosferatu like in the the text that you're reading explaining what nosferatu wants with jonathan like what jonathan's purpose is basically in visiting uh dracula and dracula's just like oh yeah i'm looking for a large piece of land in like london or whatever big ass city we're going to like i need a large property uh that can house that has a lot of space um that is no one's gonna bug me (laughs) and he's just like I need, you know, I need the specs and I definitely want this property. And Jonathan's like, well, you could have this one or this one or this one. And, you know, they kind of go through the motions. Like there's several different properties you could get. And, you know, as they're talking about it, Nosferatu really like, no, I want one that has, is closest to town, is close to a lot of people. That's what I want. Yeah. Something that is right in the middle of the hustle and bustle. And the more he talks about it, the more Jonathan's red flags are like going off. Like, this is weird. This is weird. But he ends up selling it to him anyways. And then they have to meet in London to finalize selling the papers, which is like, or signing all the paperwork, which is why Nosferatu ends up in London. Yeah. Um, yeah, it's like a whole thing. But they go into a lot of detail in that version and in the Bella Lugosi version um, as to why the movement is there. All right. Now that we've spoken about the real, like, the origin of Dracula um, with Bram Stoker's novel, we are going to be jumping to, usually we do B-movies, Okay. And I am going to rate this movie C, a C movie, and the C is for cartoon, okay? Because this is a fucking banger. I can't <laughs> even, this is not- got jokes. I do got jokes. They're bad <laughs> jokes. Sorry, we're here all day. Um, these, <laughs> this movie is um, an animated film. It came out in 2012, and I am talking about the banger of a fucking movie, hotel transylvania now if you have not for whatever reason seen hotel transylvania (laughs) y'all need to get off your asses and go watch this movie because it is funny as shit okay i'm gonna just read down the fucking cast list of this movie and you're gonna be like oh i like that person that person's funny as fuck yeah okay so as the titular character count dracula we have adam sandler as the ridiculous human in the film we have andy sandberg we've got selena gomez playing mavis dracula the daughter of count dracula we've got kevin james as frankenstein steve buscemi steve buscemi as the werewolf we've got CeeLo as murray the mummy we've got Fran Drescher as Eunice, who is Frankenstein's wife. 
we've got Molly Shannon Molly Shannon as Wanda the female werewolf who is Wayne's heavily pregnant wife we've got John Lovitz playing Quasimodo we've got David Spade as Griffin the Invisible Man Chris Parnell as Mr. Fly like the cast is insane for this wild wow insane okay those names alone like that's most of the cast of like 1991 saturday night live like just <laughs> right it's incredible um 100 if chris farley was still here with us he would have been playing something oh. in this film like rest in power King. yeah it is just fucking great okay now like i said this is a cartoon this is a family-friendly film it is just fucking funny as hell this tells the story of the hotel transylvania so we're gonna jump all the way back to 1895 uh count dracula and his wife are living their beautiful life in their beautiful beautiful castle and they've just had a baby mavis now the village people around them are normal humans and they start to realize that some weird shit is going on and they come after the count and martha because they think that something is you know something is off about them which yeah. you know they're right they're but different. yeah but still so they come after count dracula and his wife and in the giant horribleness of all of it martha ends up dying um she gets killed by this angry mob and the dream that martha and count dracula had had for the future was that they would be able to build a massive monsters only hotel in transylvania so that their daughter could they could be assured that their daughter would grow up in peace and not have to worry about being murdered by an angry mob of regular ass humans so after his wife's death um count dracula follows through on this insane idea and he commissions and builds this massive hotel transylvania where he raises his daughter mavis and we get a montage of mavis growing up um we see her as a very young like little child and learning to do all the different dracula things we see her learning how to fly how to transform into a bat how to use her different powers like climbing up walls and different things and her uh all just all these different things so we see her evolution and we are immediately brought into the modern day where mavis is now 117 about to turn 118 and in a little like spoof on the you're an adult thing (laughs) vampires are not quote adults until they are 118 (laughs) so yes makes sense yes so we are preparing at the hotel now to have this giant party for mavis's 118th birthday 
now this hotel has served as a safe haven and getaway for all the monsters that you could imagine zombies and just the blob who ate everything and the yetis and just everything they're all any monster you can imagine from a monster movie is here um and they have all come to the hotel to celebrate Mavis's 118th birthday. It's like going to be this huge blowout celebration and everyone is super, super excited. So Frankenstein shows up with his wife and Wayne and Wanda the werewolf show up and they have a fucking giant family of little tiny werewolves because think about how many pups wolves have and they just like, Basically, they're portrayed as essentially rabbits. They just have like 20 fucking tiny werewolf pups. And they're all just tearing up everything because (laughs) they're wolves. So they're like scratching at things. They're pissing on things. They're just like running around acting fucking wild. They're dogs. They're big ass dogs. Yeah, Yeah, they're big ass dogs. Um, And then the invisible man shows up and uh, Murray, the the mummy show up. And it's very clear in right as they show up that Murray the Mummy, Griffin the Invisible Man, uh, Wayne the Werewolf, and Frankenstein are all like Dracula's BFFs. And if you know anything about the lore, if you've listened to any of our podcasts, you know there's a really good reason for this. And it is because the Universal Monsters all teamed up in the 30s. Basically, we got, it was the Avengers before the Avengers were even invented. Like... (laughs) Mm-hmm. basically you know the mummy came out and then frankenstein came out and then you know they all i don't know what the exact i can't remember the exact order at this point but they all like within a year of each other all of these different movies came out and then Landed, yeah. a couple years later they did a like frankenstein meets dracula and the mummy meets the invisible man or whatever the fuck and they like teamed up and did bad shit together so they were all like really close and they've been friends for a long time so they threw that into this movie and now we know the five of them, right? Frankenstein, Dracula, Wayne. Yeah, five of them were all like BFFs. And they've been friends for a really long time. So they all show up. They're all like uncles to Mavis, essentially. And everyone's really excited about this party. Um, throughout this scene where all the different monsters are arriving, everyone is talking to Drac and they're like talking and about the safety of the hotel and how happy they are that the hotel exists and how it keeps them safe from the dangers of humans and dracula just keeps like layering it on that you know how bad humans are because he's bitter his wife was killed by humans clearly and he just keeps keeps up this story that you know he goes out into the world he flies around the human villages or whatever and they're still humans are just fucking awful basically and they hate us and they would kill us and it would be terrible so on her birthday the morning of her birthday or the night before her birthday um we learned that all mavis has ever wanted is to go out into the world she has basically Aside from the first couple of years while the hotel was being built, she has basically only known the hotel as her home. She has not been allowed to leave the grounds of the hotel. Now, the hotel itself is this big-ass castle 
which is built in the middle of like a lake. It's got one entrance, one little bridge entrance to get to it. On the outside of the lake is um, a graveyard filled with zombies, like a circular graveyard that fills all the way around. And outside of the graveyard is filled with a forest full of ghosts. Like it is a haunted forest. So they took as many precautions as they could to make sure that nobody could ever get in that didn't want to be there, right? Because it's creepy as shit. Yeah. So Mavis has only gone as far as like the haunted forest. She has never been outside of that. And she is longing to do that. You know, she's essentially an 18 year old. She just wants to explore the world without the safety of home, you know. So she's been trying and trying and trying to she's talking to herself in her room basically coming up with the conversation about how she's going to ask her dad to allow her to leave the grounds and she you know she has all these arguments built up like when he says no and I'm going to come up with all these different reasons yeah so she so she asks Drac and Drac is like yeah sure you can go out um there's a village like and he explains where there's a village over here you can go to and you can see the humans for themselves you can see them in their element go ahead i i trust you you're 118 and she you know is ecstatic she freaks out she's like hell yeah let's go Mm -hmm. so she flies out she turns into a bat and flies over to this village and lands on a roof and is just kind of looking down and no one is in the village so she flies down to the like street area of the village and like is walking around in her human form and is asking you know is yelling out hey is anybody here like what's going on and uh we see Drac who has followed her to the village watching from afar he is watching what what is about to take place now Mavis sees a like a dress um a dress shop and it's got like mannequins in it and she assumes these are normal humans and she starts talking to the mannequins because she doesn't know any better and then like a shopkeeper or something from the shop kind of sees her and starts yelling at her and then all of these people from the village come out and they're all holding like uh weapons and like torches and things and they're all yelling at her Mm -hmm. um like you know just random like get out we don't like you you're not one of our kind and all these different things and trying to get like to freak her out and Drac who is watching this he's like good good it's all going according to plan and one of the village people falls over like trips and his mask comes off and also his head and Drac rushes in puts you know stands the guy upright puts the head back on puts the mask on the head and we find out here Mm -hmm. that Dracula has hired or has forced his zombies Mm -hmm. to scare Mavis in this village um so that she does not her desire to see humans is gone and it works she freaks the fuck out and she turns into a bat and runs away yeah um while this is happening 
the torches end up lighting the zombies on fire. <laughs> so now there's this big fire. And we're warned earlier in the movie, a little bit earlier in the movie, that as long as Dracula did not set off like fireworks or have a large fire, the humans would never be able to come see him, right? Because they wouldn't know that it's there. It's hidden. It's way, way, way far away. It's inaccessible, basically. Mm -hmm. um, so this big fire that is happening because all the zombies are currently on fire uh, piques the interest of this character, Johnny, Jonathan. Um, and Jonathan sees the light of the fire. He was in the like on the edge of the forest and he sees the light of the fire and follows it so the zombies inadvertently lead johnny right to the hotel and when johnny gets to the hotel uh dracula instantly knows there's a human there he can see from a mile away that johnny is a human the other monsters are not so well versed in interacting with humans as Dracula mm. is because, I mean, just think about the lore of any of these other monsters. They don't spend a lot of time with humans. So Dracula immediately corners Johnny and he's like, what the fuck are you doing? Why are you here? Who are you? All these different things. And... Johnny is just this oblivious, like almost stoner type who, you know, he accidentally happened to be in this forest because of some other accident that happened while he was backpacking across Europe and he found this hotel and he wanted to, you know, he figured he could stay at it because it's a hotel and he's an idiot. So he doesn't realize that all of the people around him are actual monsters he thinks it's just a costume party so dracula tries to convince <laughs> him yes it's just a big um costume party and all these different things but no one can see you as a human and all these blah 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 and he's trying to get johnny out of the hotel without anybody noticing that he exists right um unfortunately other people see him like notice him a little bit and while Drac is trying to get him out of the hotel, he realizes, okay, there's no way I can do this without them clearly noticing that Johnny is a human, so we're going to disguise you. So they disguise Johnny. Uh, they dress him up and paint his skin and stuff, and he is now Johnny Stein, Frankenstein's cousin, like third cousin, three times removed or six times removed or something of frankenstein's left arm or some bullshit like that like, like <laughs> they come up with this elaborate like familial connection to frankenstein and frankenstein being kind of an idiot believes it completely he like talks to his own arm and is like you had a cousin i had no idea that's amazing <laughs> it's, it's fucking funny that's a wonderful yes so now uh 21 year old johnny is in the middle of all of these monsters unknowingly <coughs> and he is johnny stein now as he is meeting these other characters the main uh five friends or whoever he starts to realize oh shit these are real monsters um these are the real this is the real deal and dracula has to calm him down 
um, and get him to like chill the fuck out, right? So after he kind of chills out and is like, okay, this is like, y'all are nice. You're not going to eat me. It's fine. Um, Johnny meets Mavis and basically immediately the two zing. Mm-hmm. Now I'll get to what that is later, but basically it's kind of a, an instant attraction. Um, so Drac is still trying to get Johnny out of the hotel without anyone notice noticing, but that's basically impossible now that he has met, you know, Frankenstein and all these different characters and he's met Mavis and all these different things. So he comes up with the idea uh, and he's just going to tell everyone Johnny is the party planner and he comes up like, I, you know, Mavis is questioning this like, dad, you would never need a party planner. You're Dracula. Like you are, he's so like OCD in everything that has ever happened in life. And Mavis is like, "Mm, this is suspicious. And he's like, no, 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 no. I hired him because I figured for your 18th, 118th birthday, you'd want someone who's closer to your age. And Mavis is like, oh, well, that kind of makes sense. How old are you? And she asked Johnny and he's like, uh, 21. She's like, what? And he's like, uh, 121, 120, I'm 121. <laughs> so, nice. so now Johnny has a place in this party. He is now the party planner being as he's the closest quote closest to Mavis's real age. Um, and there, there's a, many scenes here where Dracula is planning the party setting things up and Johnny is constantly like oh well maybe we should do this it's a little more modern a little more fun a little fresher approach um and Dracula is resistant a lot um but everything that Johnny does to kind of bring the party up to you know the 21st century becomes a hit with the other monsters you know he's throwing like there's like an aerobics class happening in the pool and it's just like a boring like old people spa situation and johnny like jumps in the pool and is like let's have a chicken fight and then all the monsters are like partying and having a lot of fun and it's just everything that johnny does is bringing this party into the modern modern times Mm -hmm. and the group we find out that the the core group frankenstein the mummy all of that they used to be in a band and dracula was their lead singer and for the party they want to get together and perform a new like perform a song for mavis and they ask drac to sing and drac's like i haven't sang in public since my wife died like i'm good i'm not gonna sing so they start performing and their song is like this weird like you were a little girl and now you're not a little girl anymore like the song and Johnny's just like y'all need to like step it the fuck up so he jumps (laughs) up on the stage and he grabs a guitar and he starts like singing this like punk rock version of girl with the fangy fangs and it's fucking great the song is just fire go listen to it um and everybody all the monsters in the hotel absolutely love it Mavis is watching Johnny just like she's in love and just doesn't know what to do and Dracula is starting to realize that Mavis is developing feelings for this and is like, oh God, we are good. This is 
horrible let's not do this right um and he's also freaking out so drac is both jealous that johnny is getting popular with all the other things and he's afraid that if all the other monsters find out that johnny is a human they'll never come back to the hotel they like they won't because this is supposed to be the right a safe zone (laughs) so finally um in this instance where he kind of realizes that Mavis is developing feelings for Johnny, he's like, okay, Drac, or okay, Johnny, you have to leave. You cannot be here anymore. Um, so he orders Johnny to leave and he kind of does that. Um, but Mavis sees him leaving and brings him back. He's like, well, where are you going? Like the party hasn't even started yet. Like, are you done planning and all these different things? And um, she doesn't know that he's a human. She doesn't know that her dad and him have had a fight and all of these different things. And they have this conversation up on the rooftop of the hotel. She shows her, she shows him this really cool spot where she likes to come and sit and just think. And they're sitting up on the rooftop and they're having this uh conversation and she's like oh it's almost sunrise we need to go inside like i can't be out here we gotta go and um he's like oh that's right you've probably never seen a sunrise let me show you and they stand he stands her like behind a chimney so she's like hiding behind a chimney and she sees her first sunrise ever and she is just blown the fuck away um and while this hap when this happens she's like okay well maybe the world isn't so bad like the sunrise completely changed her mind maybe yeah the world can't be that bad if the sunrise is any indication of how the world can be so i will give seeing the world another chance is that was basically the whole conversation is like you can't just live your life in fear the whole time yeah um meanwhile the hotel chef quasimodo um, with the help of his pet rat Esmeralda, realize that Johnny is a human and they've been following him around trying to sniff out the human this whole time. And when he gets, when Johnny gets back into the hotel, um, Quasimodo kidnaps him and, sorry. Sorry, start that sentence over again because I don't know if the recording is going to pick up the ding that just happened on my computer or not. Okay. Um, okay, so all, all while this is happening, the hotel chef, Quasimodo, with the help of his pet rat, Esmeralda, find out that Johnny is a human. They've been sniffing him out this whole time because they have the innate ability to sniff out humans. Um, and they, when he walks back into the hotel, they kidnap him to cook him. And Drac is a, like, he sees him coming back into the hotel and then he's gone. So Drac is like, oh, fuck. Quasimodo got him, which means Quasimodo knows he's human, which is fucking horrible. Like, God, what are we going to do? So Drac intervenes, goes to the kitchen to find Quasimodo and freezes him using his, like, uh, telepathic powers, basically, um, so that Quasimodo is unable to tell anyone that Johnny is a human. Um, He takes Johnny to his room Um, And kind of explains the situation that is going on. He tells Johnny all, he shows Johnny the painting of Martha. 
and Johnny recognizes Martha and he tells the story of uh, the countess of whatever hotel or whatever castle they used to live in. And it's like this really sad story about a countess who fell in love but couldn't be with her love or something like that and um, then died a mysterious death or something like that. And Drac reveals the rest of the painting where he is standing next to Martha because they were partners. And then he tells Johnny the rest of the story. Um, Like, no, that's not what happened. I can tell you exactly who killed uh, my wife, Martha, the love of my life. It was a mob of humans. And that's why I built this hotel and why I protect Mavis so much. Um, And Johnny being the good person that he is, is like, oh shit, okay, I get it. I am gonna leave, I promise I won't come back. Um, um, And he tries to convince Mavis or he tells, he basically has this public thing with Mavis where he tells her that he does not love her and he walks or he he doesn't he doesn't even like your kind or something like that and walks away and leaves like that was his excuse for leaving um after he leaves Drac realizes that Mavis is just like unbearably sad Mm -hmm. and realizes that they have zinged um which a zing at this point we have we have figured it out because in all of the stories we've learned about it. Um, a zing is what happens when you meet your true love and a vamp for a vampire. And a vampire can only zing once in their life. Yeah. Basically, very, very vampire tropey. Very yeah. on brand. Basically, they, it harkens back to like, tw- think about Twilight. Your one true love. You have a yeah. one thing. When they have a one true love. You, they can't have change. another. And it never goes away. Yeah. yeah. Sometimes they they wait hundreds of years, thousands of years, whatever, to find their true love because they just haven't been born yet or whatever. Um, and Drac and his wife, Martha, is zinged immediately. And it's like this whole thing, you know, Mavis has grown up knowing this story and she's dreamt about finding her zing and all these different things. And in this moment, Dracula realizes that Mavis has zinged with Johnny she like that's her zing that's her one true love even though johnny is not a vampire and he's not a monster at all that's her one true love so he tries to convince oh no no no! he persuades johnny to stay and so that it doesn't ruin mavis's birthday um and they start to bond drac and johnny start to bond and they start having fun together um then the party comes and it is a huge fucking success. You know, they're having a great, a great fucking time. And uh, Mavis is looking forward to opening her gift from her mother, Martha. Um, because her mom has left her a, a birthday present that she's not allowed to open till her 118th birthday. Um, when johnny and mavis end up sharing their first kiss drac overreacts uh and in this outburst that he has about freaking out about the kiss he confesses to deceiving mavis with the zombie town 
Yeah. And all the other monsters was like, Drac, how could you? Like, what the fuck? <laughs> yeah. Um, a and then fucking Quasimodo bursts in, who's still frozen. Like somebody finds him in the kitchen and brings him in. Um, and it's he's trying to explain through his like frozen lips what is going on. And Mr. Fly uh reveals that he can speak frozen speech it's fucking wild and he translates (laughs) he translates for quasimodo and tells everyone that johnny is a human and drac disguised him and everyone is shocked and mad uh at all the lies uh but mavis doesn't even give a fuck and she wants to be with johnny uh and sorry this is the point where johnny tells her that he does not want her you know, Johnny's still trying to protect his thing with um, yeah. with Drac, and he's like, I don't even like your kind. You know, he plays up the, well, I'm a human, and y'all, you're a monster, and whatever. And he yeah. rejects her out of respect for Drac, and he leaves the hotel. Um, Mavis is absolutely heartbroken. She flies onto the roof with her mother's gift, um, and Drac follows her in hopes that he can comfort her, calm her down. And he learns that the present that her mother gave her is a book about how Drac and Martha zinged and fell in love. It's like the story of their love told from the mother's perspective. And Drac realizes that he no longer knows humankind's true tolerance of monsters. And he apologizes to Mavis. It's been a while. Yeah, it's been a long time. So he apologizes to mavis and he goes down to the patrons and that are all trying to check out because they're like the fuck this place um and he apologizes to all of the patrons and he explains to them and persuades you know the fab five over here frank wayne griffin and murray that mavis is now in love with johnny and we need to bring him back like fuck all the you know humans and monsters keep them separate thing like they're in love we have to stop him from leaving basically because it will wreck mavis forever so they set out um to go find johnny and they use the scent tracking ability uh the plan was to use wayne's scent tracking ability because he's a werewolf but he has changed quote so many diapers that his sense of smell is completely fucked up. Um, so he calls all of his kids to the area of the forest that they're in where they kind of lost his tracks. And the kids are just fucking wild and like beating each other up and stuff. And Drac asks, are there any of your kids here that still respect you? And he ends up calling uh, Winnie, who is the youngest little girl uh, pup, front and center, and to sniff the tracks and find out where he went. And she tells exactly where he went, including his flight number, his boarding time, what seat he's in on the plane. Like, yeah. <laughs> it's fucking wild. Amazing. Uh, so they immediately head to the airport to, to hopefully stop Johnny from boarding the plane, from leaving back to the United States. And they're held up in a town celebrating a monster festival along the way. And this is like a huge, like full village 
monster festival. Everybody's wearing different costumes of the main five monsters. You know, there's mummies, there's Frankensteins, there's fucking werewolves and Draculas and all these different things. And, you know, there's huge banners and there's a giant inflatable fucking uh, Frankenstein and all these different things. But the crowd is too huge for them to wander through, basically. They were going to drive through the town, but they can't. So they get out and decide to start walking and they start to realize, oh, well, the humans like clearly have a thing for us or something like something's going on. Well, let's find out if they're still afraid of us. And they decide to start to try and scare them. So they try to get Frankenstein to scare them. And he's like practicing his scares and he like can't get it right he's like um i haven't done this in a long time like are we really stooping Mm. to this level and the invisible man is like let's just speed things along and he lights a match and puts it in front of frankenstein's face and frankenstein freaks the fuck out because it's fire um and he screams and he tries to scare all these humans and everyone's just like watching kind of not in horror they're just watching this frankenstein like freak the fuck out and try and scare them all and after he ends up yelling they all clap and they're like yeah fucking frankenstein and they and frankenstein's like they think he's like the best cosplayer ever well no he's like you guys realize i'm the real frankenstein and someone in the crowd's like yeah we love you bro like you're great um you're awesome and that's awesome and frankenstein ends up basically yelling he gets up on the top of this inflatable frankenstein and yells down to the crowd um hey we you know the five of us are here we're in a serious situation we need to make it to the airport as fast as we can but we can't get through this crowd drac has to go save has to go get this guy who his daughter fell in love with and like you know he does a shortened version of the story um and everyone in the town is like oh shit let's fucking do it and some guy in a dracula costume is like draculas line up and all the draculas like, get in a fucking line together and they like part the sea of this crowd basically and the other side of the line pulls up all the dracula capes so they create this darkened tunnel so dracula can run through this darkened tunnel and not get burned by the sun because we're out in the sun here right so he gets to the other side of the town and is able to go. So he turns in, he like runs, runs and runs and runs and runs and he gets to the airport and the plane is just taking off. And he's like, well, fuck, what am I going to do now? And he's like, well, the only thing I can do, I'm going to turn into a bat and I'm going to catch up to this fucking plane. So he turns into a bat and he flies as fast as he can. And he's burning as he's yeah. flying because he's a <laughs> fucking good. vampire um and he he flies up to johnny's window and johnny sees him and he tries to get his attention but he can't johnny and then when he finally does johnny can't hear him they're like trying to talk through the window but they can't hear him Mm -hmm. so drac speeds up even more he gets to the front of the plane and basically slams himself on the fucking windshield of the plane and uses his mind control to mind control the pilot and he takes over the pilot and then over the pa of the plane explains the situation to johnny he's like uh i'm sorry i got in the way 
um, I shouldn't have done that. You know, Mavis really likes you and she's a grown up. She can make her own decisions. Um, you know, it's not up to me what happens between you two. And she would, you know, on and on and on and on. And Johnny accepts his apology. And then Drac manipulates the pilot again, and he makes the announcement, okay, we're just going to make a quick restop. Uh, we're going to turn around and refuel, and then we'll be back. And everyone on the plane, of Which course- Which is so problematic <laughs> for a plane. This would never happen in real life. That poor plane would have gotten shot down so hard. Everyone would have been like, terrorist attack. Oh my God. Not Terrifying. a terror. Why a terrorist attack? somebody's taking the plane over and flying it somewhere else they don't know no no, no. they don't know and they don't know that anyone's being taken over drac is on the windshield using his mind control the pilot is the one speaking oh no i i fully get the pilot i'm saying the the uh the airport like the fact that that plane is coming back airspace issues that's all i'm saying oh well if the pilot was just like oh yeah we have a like a fuel issue we need to go back and land like i'm sure he made up some bullshit that's the cartoon don't think too much okay (laughs) i'm just saying i'm just saying sorry maybe as an american this is not something that other people think of as much as americans do i guess but yeah the minute you were like oh (laughs) no oh no please don't turn the plane around everyone's gonna freak out no, all of the all of the people on the plane get upset because like now their flight is fucking delayed and they're not going to be home when they were supposed to be home. Basically, yeah. you know, every fucking announcement that comes over the PA in a plane, you're just like, oh, come on, right? <laughs> yeah. So they end up turning around to the Transylvania Airport, um, and Drac returns Johnny to Mavis. They end up going back to the hotel um and he announces that he approves of johnny now drac is like covered in sunburns because he's all fucked up and mavis realizes what the fuck happened um and she immediately forgives johnny for the things that he said or no sorry he for she forgives drac because he brought she yeah he forgives (laughs) she forgives her father because her dad brought Johnny back to her. And go. Johnny confesses to Mavis that the zing was mutual. He didn't mean any of that other shit that he said. And they kiss. And then the monsters finish celebrating Mavis's party. Um, and, you know, they all join in. They, you know, Drac gets up and sings. And Johnny performs. And, um, my gosh, Mavis performs because it's Selena Gomez. Like, yeah, yeah. It's just, it's fucking great. the The music for this movie is fucking hilarious because it's like Lonely Island plus Adam Sandler plus Selena right. Gomez and CeeLo. Like, <laughs> it's so good. Oh wow! Uh, and that is the story of Hotel Transylvania. Everyone's happy again, and it's great. This movie is fantastic like i cannot sing the praises of this movie enough it is a great family friendly feature into monsters like if they don't have any if your kids don't have any experience with like quote scary movies um before you jump into the like monster house and paranorman and Coralines and even the nightmare before christmases of it all i recommend 
starting with Hotel Transylvania um, yeah. because it is it's not scary at all. Um, and if you have, you know, kids, younger kids, you've probably watched like the super monsters, uh, which is like, you know, all the little monsters go to fucking preschool, that type of show. This is just like all the super monsters grew up and they're still friends and like hanging out in the world. So it's really fucking good. The music is by Mark Mothersbaugh, who if you've listened to any of Allentown presents other scary stuff or other movies you know that we love mark mother's ball around here he can do no wrong <laughs> um yeah and like i said earlier this movie is not a b movie like we usually watch this movie made all the fucking money okay sure yeah <laughs> this sure. movie made 360 million dollars okay Jesus. this is nowhere near wow. a, b movie. a lot yeah. yeah, this movie made so much money that they're about to release, like it comes out later this year, Hotel Transylvania 4. Yeah. So, <laughs> so this Track. was quite the success, not the B movie that we usually do. Okay. That was so good. Yes, I love, I love this movie. I will forever sing the praises of it. <laughs> All right. Seven word synopsis on the first half of Bram Stoker's Dracula. All right, I got two. My first is, how is Lucy doing? Not well, bitch. (laughs) (laughs) And my second one is, add Dracula to this podcast's bicon list. (laughs) I'm just saying, we just keep acquiring a long list of not even characters, but authors as well onto the the queer uh community member list okay mine is real estate deal benefits blood-sucking millionaire nice love that <laughs> like it's not really very clear so much so that he's in oh, it, real estate kind of but it will be like well i yeah. mean like jonathan but i'm saying like it will that will make so much more accurate sense in the second half in the second half yeah yeah Yeah. my my thing kind of comes from all of my knowledge of of dracula and stuff but yeah (laughs) i mean that's basically what's happening in this story so (laughs) correct all right seven word synopsis hotel transylvania i put goth kids dream meets racism issues metaphor i i definitely felt a like a um like oppressed people's valid fears of like privileged people's um oppressions on their groups and then therefore kind of internalizing that into a you know you can't trust any one unless it is unless we have explicitly like very much vetted them and I don't see that honestly as a bad thing I see it as kind of a tragic thing I kind of see it as a like it's very understandable that Dracula hated humans and didn't want anything to do with them for a very long time because what how they were treating his kind for a very very long time were was terrifying and terrible for them you know 
And my other reasoning for that is that a lot of times in like historically speaking in literary tropes, the the creature features and like the horror aspects, we'll talk about this again also in the next episode when I finish Dracula, that um, like horrifying monsters and things like that were often unfortunately really racist stand-ins um, for marginalized people's identities in literature or in art. And I I kind of really loved the reclaiming of that that I personally saw um, in this story of Hotel Transylvania and them being like, no, you know what? We, we fully have a very good reason for, for fearing um, humans in this metaphor. Like we have very understandable reasons for fearing them. And like, yeah, it's wonderful that some humans now are, are not being as bad, but like there was need for that caution and we can, we can navigate the, the, you know, reconciling of these two groups, we can navigate that. Um, we might have some bumps and some ups and downs, but, um, you know, I don't know. I just, I really liked it. It really kind of spoke to me in that way. All right. I've got two, um, hotel for monsters protects them from humans. That's a general plot. Like (laughs) that's the story. Uh, and then I have never said blah, blah, blah. <laughs> like, <laughs> if you have seen this movie, you know what I'm talking about. Constantly <laughs> throughout this movie, Johnny is talking about uh, whenever he brings up like vampires or whatever, he is mocking Dracula or talking to him or even when they go to the monster fest later and he meets these other Draculas. They are these people dressed up like Dracula. They always end like they have this weird quote, Transylvanian accent where they speak like, I don't know, with like a, they speak English with a Romanian twist on it. And then like add a bleh, 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 because Mm -hmm. that's how Dracula is supposed to speak. And throughout the whole film, Dracula is just like I don't talk like that I don't sound it's like not that necessary yeah. I've never in my life I've never once said blah 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 and he just keeps getting more and more mad as people are saying that to him and it's <laughs> fucking hilarious that's amazing yeah. yeah uh yeah so that has been um Hotel Transylvania and it's fucking great go watch this movie I can't wait to watch it it's really good. Okay. And that concludes our episode of Real Lit. We hope you have enjoyed this episode. If you're interested in following more of this show or checking out the other awesome shows on the Allentown Presents Network, you can check us out on Twitter at Allentown Pod or on Facebook at Allentown Presents. If you want to suggest a book or a movie for us to cover, or you have questions for us, or you just want to say hi, you can hit us up in our email at allentownpresents at gmail.com, or you can hit us up on Twitter or Facebook, either one. The best way to support our show is by liking, following, subscribing, rating, and or reviewing us on whatever platform you listen to your podcasts on. Following, rating, and reviewing helps small podcasts like us spread and gets the word out on us. And the other best way to support us is by recommending us to people you know whom you think you may enjoy it. 
we'd like to thank our icon artist, Susan Dorda. Susan Dorda, I would definitely um, stuff your room full of garlic if I thought you were being um, attacked by Dracula in the middle of the night. I'd stay at a hotel for monsters for you. There you go. <laughs> <laughs> you can check her work out at susandorta.com. That's S-U-S-A-N-D-O-R-T-A.com. Uh, thank you so much for listening and we'll see you next time. It's been real. Keep it lit. Bye. Bye.